Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. <sighs> Toxicology, astro seismology, magnetism, the dark side, genetically engineered potatoes, planetoid, planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Antarctic astronomy and murderous meat. But first up, Here's the news. Meat is a murderer. Smoked cured preserved meat will kill you. Processed meats rank alongside smoking as cancer causes. Processed meats do cause cancer. Eating processed meat can increase your risk of cancer by 1%. Probably doesn't work as well as clickbait. The World Health Organization's International Agency for Research on Cancer regularly releases reports on causes of cancer. They very carefully only address how strong the evidence for causes of cancer are, not an assessment of the risk such causes of cancer pose to your health. For the last 50 years, their policy has been to leave that key piece of information to individual national regulatory agencies. They're only concerned with classing something as definitely proved to be cancer-causing in humans with sufficient evidence, probably cancer-causing with limited evidence in humans and sufficient evidence in other animals, possibly cancer-causing with limited evidence for humans and less than sufficient evidence in other animals, probably not cancer-causing due to suggestive evidence, and not classifiable due to inadequate evidence. The report is concerned with hazards rather than risks. An agent is considered a cancer hazard if it's capable of causing cancer under some circumstances. Risk measures the chances that cancer will occur, taking into account the level of exposure to the agent. Risk assessment involves looking at different scenarios, finding out real-world exposure levels and weighing possible benefits. Those factors can vary from person to person, country to country. The new report places processed meats such as bacon, salami, ham and sausages into the category of proved to cause cancer, along with plutonium, asbestos, smoking, alcohol, obesity and exposure to the sun. But while smoking increases your chances of lung cancer by 2,500%, the International Agency for Cancer concludes that a daily portion of 50 grams, or 1.8 ounces, of processed meats increases the risk of colorectal cancer by 18%. Now, that sounds like a lot, 
until you understand that it's not the risk of you getting cancer that they're talking about, but the increase in the risk of you getting cancer. The risk for every human, regardless of diet, of getting colorectal cancer is 5%. You increase that risk by 18% to get an overall 6% risk of colorectal cancer if you eat processed meat. That's an overall rise of just 1%. That's a pretty small risk to be changing your life for. There's sufficient evidence that as you double the size of your 50 gram daily portion of processed meats, you double the increase in your risk of cancer. You could go from 1% more to 2% more. That is up to 7% risk of colorectal cancer. How do processed meats cause cancer? It's thought that an iron-based chemical called heme, found in red meat, breaks down into cancer-causing N-nitroso compounds in the digestive tract. Partly because of this, the International Agency for Cancer also classified unprocessed red meat as a probable carcinogen. That is, there's limited evidence it might cause cancer in humans. But processed meat takes it a step further. The nitrates and nitrites that are used to preserve meat in bacon, sausages and so on also turn into N-nitroso compounds. Cooking the meat quickly at high temperatures may create yet further cancer-causing compounds. Slow that cooking right down and take your time. The slow food movement has something to it, and it makes sense to slow down the amount of processed meat in your diet. Just eat less of it. However, Giving up processed meats will not make the giant improvement to your life that quitting smoking would, or quitting alcohol. And bacon and sausages, while delicious, and despite some cultures' obsessions with them, are not addictive. Listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Professor Michael Burton is from the School of Physics at the University of New South Wales. He's an astronomer who studies molecular clouds and star formation. This time I began by asking him. Why go to Antarctica? Yes, you might wonder about that. Why on earth would we go to the end of the Earth to try and do astronomy? But the Antarctic Plateau is actually the best site on, the, on our planet for many forms of astronomy. It's very, very high up. It's over 4,000 metres in elevation. It's incredibly dry. It's the driest place on our planet. And, of course, it's extremely cold. Uh, and, in fact, it's very, very stable. You might think that Antarctica is full of howling gales. Well, that's true around the coast. But if you go on the Antarctic Plateau, it's actually incredibly calm. So on top of the Antarctic Plateau, we have incredibly good conditions for a wide range of astronomy. And in particular, it lets new windows through the atmosphere into space. And in particular, in what are called the infrared 
and the terahertz portion of the spectrum, we can see out into space in ways which the only other way of beating it is to go into space itself. So there are atmospheric conditions in Antarctica that allow these wavelengths of light through the atmosphere that are not allowed through the atmosphere in other parts of the world? Yes, that's exactly it. And particularly because it's so dry. So water vapour in the Earth's atmosphere absorbs radiation. Uh, and so for large parts of the spectrum, you simply can't see uh, anything coming from space because it's absorbed by the Earth's atmosphere. But you go to the Antarctic Plateau uh, and the water vapour, it can be like a tenth of a millimetre of water vapour. Now to put that in perspective, here in Sydney, we're typically 20 or 30 centimetres of water above us. Here we've got a tenth of a millimetre of water. And so that does indeed open new windows into space, in particular what's called the terahertz portion of the spectrum. So right now, and we've actually got a couple of collaborations going on, one's with the USA and the other's with China, uh, and they're on the very highest point of the Antarctic Plateau, a place called Dome A, uh, Dome Argus, the highest point of the plateau, 4,000 metres high. And because of these incredibly dry conditions, we, we've built this uh, observatory. It's called the, uh, the HEAT Observatory. HEAT stands for High Elevation Antarctic Terahertz Telescope. Its actual factor was built by our colleagues at the University of Arizona. It's a small telescope. It's only 60 centimetres in size. But it's sitting on top of the Antarctic Plateau. It works completely robotically. And we're measuring uh, the galaxy through the terahertz windows which are opened up, they're opened continuously through the Antarctic winter, and we can see spectral lines which you simply can't see from anywhere else on the Earth. So because it's Antarctica, when it's winter, it's night time for the whole six months? That's the other part of it, yes. You have these very, very long uh, winters, I mean nights basically. It is effectively at the South Pole indeed at six months daylight, six months darkness. At Dome A, which is not at the South Pole, it's about 85 south, we're getting roughly four months of continuous darkness. So that's the other aspect too, is you've got a very stable conditions for a very long period of time. And that actually helps many kinds of astronomy where you want to look at something continuously for a long period of time. It's called time domain astronomy, and it's a new kind of window to the atmosphere as well. So if you've got six months of night and you can operate the observatory remotely, it sounds like astronomers' heaven. <laughs> well, essentially, we do. All the, all the operations are done uh, Back in, our, back in our offices. In fact, we don't go to the telescopes very often anymore. <laughs> Actually, we lose a lot of the fun that way because, of course, it's... Uh... But, yeah, the way the Antarctic Observatory works is that a small team goes down uh, each, each summertime. And, in fact, at the place that, uh, near Dome A, they spend um, literally about one week per year there. It takes them a few weeks to get there. They have to go to the South Pole first. They acclimatise. They get their equipment ready. And then they're flown in. They're flown in through what's called a Twin Otter aircraft, and they spend um, literally a week. They're camped out, literally camping. It's it's not it's not comfortable, and it is very cold. It might be uh, summertime, but it's still typically minus thirty, minus forty degrees centigrade. Uh, but of course, it's uh, there's not much wind, and so you can actually survive there. And their job is to get the telescope ready, and then we run it remotely. We run it over the Iridium telephone network, in fact. So right now, in fact, we've been engaged on making a new map of the galaxy. So just like with the Mopla telescope, we're looking at the carbon monoxide, the molecules in space, we're actually looking at atoms in space uh, with the heat telescope, looking at the carbon atom. So the carbon atom, another form which carbon can come in, it can be formed in carbon monoxide, it can be formed as carbon by itself, they're the two dominant forms. 
Uh, it emits only in the terahertz windows. Its particular emission line is, is in, this, in this regime, and it can't be seen essentially from any other window. So we're able to now look at the distribution of the carbon in the interstellar space, and in fact we're using the heat telescope in Antarctica and the MOPA telescope in Australia in parallel to try and understand this is the life cycle of the interstellar gas, because in fact the, the carbon Go, it goes through carbon before it goes to carbon monoxide in the molecules. And so we're actually probing the very formation of the molecular clouds out of the atomic substrate as we look at the transition between carbon and carbon monoxide. So indeed, we're opening new windows, not only into space, but we're seeing processes which we simply couldn't see any other way. And has anything unexpected come out of it recently? Well, one of the things we're doing is actually measuring what we call the dark molecular gas. So you've probably heard about dark energy and dark matter. These are forms of matter which we can feel or might be causing the expansion of the universe. Well, dark molecular gas is not quite as exotic as that, but there is lots of molecular gas out there which we know must be present, but we can't see it. The reason we can't see it is that the trace species we usually use, the carbon monoxide, doesn't exist within it. At the very outside of molecular clouds, it so happens that molecules, or well, the carbon monoxide molecule can't exist, but the hydrogen molecule can. It's got to do with the physics of how radiation penetrates into the cloud, but you basically get pretty well pure hydrogen molecules, which can't be seen. The hydrogen molecule doesn't produce emission lines. But the carbon monoxide, while that's not present, the carbon must still be there. You can't take away the carbon. And so the carbon actually exists in this atomic form. And that's what we can see with this terahertz telescope. So in fact, we call this the dark molecular gas. It's the front surface, the outer surface of a molecular cloud. It hasn't been possible to see it before because we haven't had a way of probing the gas in there. But now, with this terahertz telescope, we can see this dark molecular gas. And so we're trying to chart out how much dark molecular gas in the galaxy. We actually think probably about a third or so of the molecular clouds in our galaxy is probably in this dark form, but that's actually what we're trying to find out now. It's certainly a very substantial part, substantial part uh, of the molecular gas is, is dark. What other telescopes are you operating in Antarctica? Well, one of the other things that you can do really well from Antarctica is what's called infrared. So infrared is like heat radiation. You've probably seen infrared now because infrared is used for security cameras and you can't hide someone at night because they're always emitting an infrared glow. Well, Antarctica, because it's so cold, it's the coldest place on the Earth, has essentially far less infrared emission from the atmosphere than anywhere else. So if we want to look into the cosmos in the infrared, we want to go somewhere which is really cold, so this, this background emission, which is really noise, it's noise that gets in the way, it's far reduced. So Antarctica is really good for this. And in fact, we're now involved in a project uh, with China. It's on the top of the Antarctic plateau at a place called Dome A. Uh, and there's a telescope called the uh, AST telescope, the Antarctic Survey Telescope. And we're building um, an, an infrared camera. So this is a prototype telescope. It's, it's only very small. It's 60 centimeters in size. And we'll have an infrared camera in the bottom, at the back end of it, to image the sky. And what we're going to try and do is what's called time domain astronomy. Because it's so dark for so long uh, in Antarctica over the winter, we can stare at a small patch of sky. We can do that continuously. And with an infrared array, we can study the variation of the, of the light in the infrared, and we can do it over a large area. And of course, we can be very, very sensitive because Antarctica is so much colder. So we've got a project. It's called KISS, in fact. KISS stands for the Kunlun Infrared Sky Survey. 
Kunlun is the name of the, the, the Antarctic station that China has built at the top of the uh, Antarctic Plateau. So the, so the KISS survey is going to be the next thing in infrared astronomy, and it's a project we're engaged in now. We're hoping to have the telescope there in probably about three years' time. Um, it's being constructed now, and the camera is going to be built uh, here in Sydney at the uh, Australian Astronomical Observatory out in North Ride, and the Chinese are building the telescope, and we're going to take them together to the top of the Antarctic Plateau. So also one of the very interesting things about how you run an observatory in Antarctica. So these, these stations, the Kunlun uh, station at Dome, no one spends the winter there. Everything has to be done remotely. You go in the summertime, you set things up, and you come away again. The secret for success, in fact, is an automated observatory. It's an observatory called PLATO, and it's built by my colleague Michael Ashley here at the University of New South Wales. Actually, over the last couple of decades at UNSW, we've been developing a series of automated observatories. We started out at the South Pole. It was actually called the ASTO experiment, and we, we then moved to a, a place uh, on the high plateau called Dome C. It was a, a French and the Italian station, and that was called the ASTINO experiment. We learned from those. They were successful, but they had some problems. This matured into the latest, the Plato Observatory, or the Plateau uh, Observatory, and now we have one of these uh, on the very highest part of the Antarctic Plateau. So basically, PLATO consists of two modules. One module is a power module. It's full of diesel generators. It's separated uh, by 100 metres or so from an instrument module, and there's a, there's a power cord running between them. The instrument module is kept warm by the power we're providing it, so the computers are inside, are kept warm and in a warm con container, but they're connected to the telescopes which are sitting outside. And we can communicate with this PLATO uh, module through, uh, through the Iridium telephone network, it's a small band pass, but it's a bit like sort of logging on to a modem line. And we can communicate with the telescopes, and essentially we can run them remotely uh, through the Antarctic winter. So the success of the, of the Plato Observatory, and particularly my colleague Michael Ashley, who, who built and runs these, that has made this whole, uh, whole process possible, and indeed has opened up the possibility of, of robotic observatories on top of the Antarctic Plateau. You've mentioned that you're using the old Iridium satellite phone network. Yes. Now and it's, it's modem-type bandwidth. So how low is that bandwidth? It's a couple of kilobits or something like that. Wow. A kilobit or so. It's, so it's not megabits per second, so you can't download larger, larger images from there, but you can have a steady, steady stream. You can send back uh, monitoring information. You can send back uh, health and safety information and a small amount of data. Large amounts of data, however, have to be stored on, on, on disks. We have solid-state disks which are kept down there and then each, each summertime when the, when the maintenance expedition goes in, then you retrieve the disk itself. One day perhaps we might lay a fibre cable to the top of the Antarctic Plateau, but that's a few years off yet. So yes, it's, it's, we can do a lot fully remotely, but we can't pull everything back. The amounts of data we can create these days is actually too much to, to, to take back everything uh, in real time. So these two uh, telescopes I've talked to you about, the heat telescope, the terahertz one, and, and the KISS, the infrared telescope, these are prototype telescopes. These are really technology demonstrators to show we can indeed do astronomy with fairly small telescopes, but actually doing science with them. But they're demonstrators for what we want to come beyond. So we have plans for two sort of moderate-sized telescopes. For the infrared, the telescope's called K-DUST, or the Kunlun Dark Universe Survey Telescope. That will be a, a two-and-a-half-metre-sized telescope, so about the same size as, for instance, the ANU telescope in Siding Spring, and that would have a, have, have a state-of-the-art infrared camera on board. And we have plans for a terahertz telescope. That one is called uh, DATE-5, which stands for the Dome A Terahertz Experiment, and 5 is 5 metres. 
So it'll be basically a five meter radio telescope, but designed particularly for the terahertz part of the spectrum. And that one's going to be able to measure this carbon, the carbon from interstellar space, this dark molecular gas, in ways that no one else has been able to do it before. So the plan is China will build these telescopes. China is seeking funds at the moment through their, through their basically their, their science funding system. But several other countries will be collaborating, and particularly here in Australia, we're, we're very closely involved in both the, the preparatory work for these, uh, these new frontline uh, instruments. Michael Burton, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Ian. I enjoyed it. That was Professor Michael Burton from the University of New South Wales, talking about observing the stars in Antarctica. Michael successfully crowdfunded the MOPRA Observatory to complete his map of the last uncharted delta quadrant of our Milky Way galaxy. You're still a citizen with the power to vote. Living in a scientific age, we need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. We've used science to to prolong life, to increase security and happiness. But it can also be used for destruction. Are we going to use it constructively to promote peace and, and give the world freedom from want? It'll be up to you and you too. Sarah Brooker and Neil Byrne run Science in Public, a science communications company who created the Fresh Science National Competition to encourage early career scientists to find the story in their science and get it out to the public. The Bright Spark Challenge is for these scientists to explain their research in the time it takes a sparkler to burn down, which is about 45 seconds to a minute, depending on the sparkler. Here's Jessica Stanley from the University of New South Wales, She has until her sparkler runs out, after which Sarah Brooker will ask her some questions. Sarah also asked the audience to contribute some questions, which the microphone didn't pick up. Fortunately, she immediately repeats them, so you won't miss out. You're off. Right. Hi. So I've designed sulfur-resistant catalysts for our future fuels. So we all know that we're running out of fossil fuels and we've got this problem, pesky problem called climate change. So what we want to do is design alternative fuels because, well, let's face it, the big A380 that's going up above our heads that we really don't know how it can fly, it's so big, it's not going to run on batteries. So what we need to do is design catalysts that won't be poisoned by sulfur, which is in all the woody biomass feedstocks. So that's what I've been doing. I've made these biometallic catalysts. They really, they just regenerate in, front, in this presence of the sulfur. They'll make our renewable fuels. And well done. Well done. <laughs> oh, well done, well done. So hang on to that. I've got a couple of questions for you. I'm, I'm curious, you, so you're talking about renewable fuels. So what are you talking about? I know we can't use oil anymore. So what are the options with renewables that you, you're talking about? Yep, so to meet all our sort of future energy needs, there'll be a whole heap of different methods. You've probably heard of your solar, your hydrogen, your batteries. What I'm looking at are biofuels. So these are fuels. I'm looking particularly at li- liquid fuels. So they're similar to the crude oil, but they're made from plant material. So this could be waste products, agricultural residues, fast-growing crops. Okay, so can we just grab some crops that we don't really use and and burn them? I mean, is that easy to do? Um, So we're not looking at burning them. We're looking at converting them using these catalysts into liquid fuels. So converting them into more useful things. And how do you do that? 
How do we do this? I'm using these catalysts. So we'll put them in through the catalyst and we'll have some hydrogen, hopefully also from renewable sources. And these catalysts will do their thing, making these pathways possible. So the catalyst that you found, so this has been a problem up till now and your catalyst is different. Why is yours different? So most of the catalysts, that have, or all the catalysts that had been developed for this particular process had been developed for using refined forms of biomass or refined plant materials, simple compounds. But the problem is that this, these plant materials, they've got sulfur in them from the proteins or from from the nutrients. And so this sulfur is a problem because it will poison these catalysts. So my catalyst is different because they work by this fancy little mechanism that means that they're not poisoned by the sulfur and they can self-regenerate while processing this biomass. Terrific, so who's using it? Who's using it? The people in the lab at the moment. Of course, this is, you know, we've, you start with the basics and you build your way up. Okay. Where do you hope it will be used if we sort of fast forward three, three, four, five years' time? Fast forwarding, this will be for the aviation industry. Cars, your cars to go to coals, they'll probably, you could, you, can, you could have your batteries, you could have your hydrogen. But for big passenger planes, we're going to need liquid fuels like we're currently using. Oh, terrific. Are there any questions from the audience? Shoot your hand up nice and high. We've got one in the back. Project your voice. Okay, so the cost question. There's yeah. always going to be a question well. about renewables. When is it going to be cost effective? Um, I guess part of the big thing is we're just going to run out of this oil. There's just not, no of two ways about it. We're going to run out, and if we're going to run out, then that's always going to eventually make things the cost effective sooner, hopefully, rather than later. So that's the impetus. Yeah. yeah. Well, join me in thanking Jessica for being first up on stage. Well done. Thank you. And that was Jessica Stanley. A big thank you to Science in Public for permission to broadcast the Bright Spark Challenge. More Bright Sparks in the coming weeks. There's no doubt what we need trained scientists. So you see, women need to know as much about science as some men do. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Check-in production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, 2 NVR in Nambaka Valley, 2 X in Canberra, and 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then explore more than 700 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are indexed by keywords so you can easily find the subjects you'd like to focus on. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week 
on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. <laughs>